The following message was given by Nick Kidwell, the senior pastor of Valley Creek Church. For more information about the church, visit us online at www.valleycreek.church. Well, once again, I want to thank the congregation for helping me with this Sunday's sermon. So last week, all the men got together on Tuesday. We discussed the passage for that Sunday. This past week, all of the women got together, and we wrestled through the passage. Uh, They caught me. I left a verse out when I wrote it on the board, so they kept they kept check on me. Uh, But it was a it was a great time of walking through the Word together, and it got me eager to be able to bring God's Word uh, this morning for us. So this morning, we're concluding chapters 8 and 9 of Matthew, and in the process, we are entering into a mini-series within Matthew I'm entitling On Mission, because the end of our passage today and the entirety of chapter 10 has its focus on the fact that what the Lord came to do involves calling his disciples to do the same. Yes, there are obvious distinctives about the Lord and what he did, and and we've seen those things, but he's seen good to enlist us into his mission as well. And all the teaching and all the healing and all the ministry that we've seen him doing over the past few chapters, he is now going to commission his followers to carry on in the power and the authority of his name. And this is good because God designed us that we should work. Though our labor is now tainted by the effects of sin and the fall, and much of our work is in pain and the sweat of our brow. Nonetheless, he made us not to just sit stationary, but to move, to accomplish, to engage. And this is no different with, and in fact amplified in, the mission that he has for us in ministry and the ministry work that he has for us to do. But... We are a people who, though we are designed to work, need motivation to do so. And there are a lot of voices trying to motivate us to do a lot of things. We live in an age where we are bombarded with causes and movements that we can be a part of. This applies to social causes, philanthropic organizations. It applies to private enterprises as well. For instance, take the prominent platform Kickstarter, a popular crowdfunding website where individuals can put out their idea for some new product or service and rally the masses to help them to fund this endeavor. But nobody's just going to hand over their hard-earned money to any Joe Schmo, especially in something like Kickstarter. You're not a partner in the investment. You're not going to be getting things back regularly. You're a benefactor contributing often only with some small gift in return. Now, now what would rally an individual then to participate in such a thing, to give their hard-earned money over to an individual like this? Well, there's, there's several things that make for a good campaign. For one, you have to have a good product. Your product and your service needs to be clearly defined, understandable. People need to know what they're contributing to. Second, you need to engage the why of your product. Why is it important that this thing comes to be? What, what makes this product unique, special, significant? And a third vital component is making clear what you're asking. 
Often, these campaigns have giving levels, accomplished trackers, and are clear to anyone of how to give, what to give, and where. If you, do have these, if you don't have these three crucial components, it's very unlikely that you're going to muster any kind of support or anybody but your mother is going to give you any money. But if you do have these components, you might draw folks in. The most successful Kickstarter campaign of all time was the Pebble Time smartwatch, which raved, which raised roughly twenty million dollars on the platform. Well, as we'll see at the end of our passage today, the Lord is raising support Himself, but He's not making smartwatches or video games. He's calling and raising up laborers to send into the harvest, bringing the kingdom of God and the good news of the gospel to the world. And being the author of life, He knows the goal. He knows the need, and he makes clear the call of this mission. And it's these three aspects about the mission that we're going to look at together as we see the final three miracle sets in chapter 9 and the close of this chapter 8 and chapter 9 section. So please turn with me, if you would now, to Matthew chapter 9, verses 18 to 37, where the Lord's going to stir our hearts and motivate us towards his mission. Let me pray. Father, I ask that you would work on our hearts this morning. This is a needed message for myself, for us here, Father, that you have a glorious gospel that you have given us. You have a glorious truth that you have revealed. You have achieved for us a great salvation, and you have called us to be laborers in the field of your harvest that many might know and receive the goodness that you have. Be with us as we read. Help our hearts to be engaged. Help our minds to be engaged. Help us to understand by the power of your Holy Spirit. We pray all of this in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. All right, so Matthew chapter 9, verses 18 to 38, and I just realized I'm in Hebrews right there. All right, here we go. While he was saying these things to them, behold, a ruler came in and knelt before him, saying, My daughter has just died, but come and lay your hand on her, and she will live. And Jesus rose and followed him with his disciples. And behold, a woman who had suffered from a discharge of blood for 12 years came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment. For she said to herself, if I only touch his garment, I will be made well. Jesus turned and seeing her, he said, take heart, daughter, your faith has made you well. And instantly the woman was made well. And when Jesus came to the ruler's house and saw the flute players and the crowd making a commotion, he said, go away for the girl is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But when the crowd had been put outside, he went in and took her by the hand and the girl arose. And the report of this went throughout all that district. And as Jesus passed on from there, two blind men followed him, crying aloud, Have mercy on us, son of David. When he entered the house, the blind men came to him, and Jesus said to them, Do you believe that I am able to do this? They said to him, Yes, Lord. Then he touched their eyes, saying, According to your faith, be it done to you. And their eyes were opened, and Jesus sternly warned them, See that no one knows about it. 
But they went away and spread his fame through all the district. As they were going away, behold, a demon-oppressed man who was mute was brought to him. And when the demon had been cast out, the mute man spoke, and the crowds marveled, saying, Never was anything like this seen in Israel. But the Pharisees said, He casts out demons by the prince of demons. And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. This is the word of the Lord. Yet again, we have a series of miracles being performed at the hands of our Lord. And yet again, there are many things that we could highlight and dive into, but I do believe that all the matters that we see here, faith, opposition, compassion, mission, they all serve to emphasize the purpose of the Lord's mission and empower his disciples to follow his ways as he is about to commission them to go and do likewise. That's what we'll see in chapter 10. So so let's break this passage down then and consider those aspects of the mission. The purpose of the Lord's mission the need for the mission, and our call to the mission. So first, the purpose of the mission. Your mission will not be a very successful one if it's not clear from the get-go what the purpose of it is. For instance, if mom gave me $15 and said, go to the store, there's a lot of unclarity in what I'm supposed to do there. I might think that simply going to the store will accomplish the mission, I might think that doing something good with that $15 along the way will accomplish the mission. I might think that buying as much as I can at the store with $15 will accomplish the mission. Or maybe there's something specific that I should buy. There's a lack of clarity there. I don't know what the actual goal is. If we do not clearly understand what the Lord came to do and what the Lord has called us to do, We likewise might consider it mission accomplished when in fact we've missed the point of the mission altogether. We've spoken on this already, we've seen it in previous passages, and and we see throughout all of these interactions today that nearness with, faith in, and obedience to Christ Jesus is the purpose of our mission, that people would see and know God through His Son Jesus Christ. Being kind to people is not the goal. Being good to people is not the goal. Serving social causes is not the goal. Even knowing our Bibles is not the main goal. These are all good things, necessary things, but they aren't the center. They serve and support the real goal, which is knowing Christ and making Him known. And that's what we see in these miracles today. People drawing near to Jesus, marveling at who He is, and seeing further displays of His nature. 
And so rather than reemphasize that point, which we've spoken to recently, that Jesus is the center, the centrality of all that we do, of our faith and the object of our worship, I want to just use this to highlight some things that these stories again reveal to us about who this one is that we're called to draw near to and to follow. For starters, he's compassionate. We have already seen the Lord touch the leper. We've seen him heal Jew and Gentile alike. We've seen him help the young, the elderly, male and female. And our passage this morning further serves to highlight the heart of our great Savior who we are calling people to. He is compassionate and he welcomes people to himself. What we see in this passage is a Savior who is approachable. The other day, I was confessing to a brother how weak I feel right now in personal evangelism. And I feel much of my lack in evangelism stems not necessarily from fear of rejection or anything else, but from a sheer lack of compassion. I don't want to be interrupted by people's needs. I'm tired. I'm busy. And if I'm honest, I'd rather get to where I'm going. I'd rather take a nap or be alone than have to take the time to stop and engage with a stranger about the gospel. To have to take the time to be discerning and be winsome, to expel the emotional energy, to care. And my guess is I'm not the only one who struggles in this way. Well, thankfully, this is a weakness of mine, but it's not what I learned from my Savior. This is not the heart of the Lord. The purpose of the mission is to draw people near to Jesus Christ, and thankfully Jesus is infinitely approachable and infinitely compassionate. Jesus never says that he's too busy. Jesus never turns someone away because he's too tired. Jesus never turns a blind eye out of discomfort or disgust. No, Jesus is willing to go with this ruler when he comes and asks for help with his daughter who is dead. And along the way, Jesus is willing to take a moment and be interrupted by this woman with a physically and socially debilitating discharge of blood. He does not shut the door when he enters a house, but he welcomes in these two blind men who had been trailing him along the way. He handles the demons and the oppressed man. And we're told in, verses, in verse 35, And Jesus went throughout all the cities and the villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. Each of these interactions took time. Christ did take on human flesh. He got tired. He had limitations of, of time and space each of these things took mental and physical energy. I'm sure many of these took great patience and great social skill. And yet the Lord didn't grow irritable or frustrated. What was his response? When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them. This is Jesus. This is the Lord that we serve and that we're calling people to. He wants to spend time with us. He wants to be near to us. Notice how much touch is mentioned in this passage. One of the gals brought this up as we were studying the passage on Tuesday. I love it. Verse 18, the leader asked him to lay his hand 
on his dead daughter. Verse 20, the woman with the discharge touched the fringe of his garment. Verse 25, he took the hand, he took the hand of the dead girl. Verse 29, he touched the eyes of the blind men. Take note when themes and words are repeated, they're often done so for a reason. The Lord is near. He is affectionate. He is compassionate. He is intimate with people, even when it means breaking social norms and barriers. The touch from the woman with the discharge would have made him ritualistically unclean. Touching a dead body was the greatest way to be made unclean according to the law. And yet the Lord is more concerned with caring for people than he is with ensuring he himself is unstained. The Lord enters into the mess and he welcomes us. But he isn't just compassionate. If the Lord were just infinitely compassionate but couldn't do anything about the plight of those that he met, he wouldn't bring us much hope. But the Lord is infinitely compassionate and he has infinite power and authority. We see here in verse 18 a ruler. This we know from a parallel account is a ruler from the synagogue. This was a man with power coming and kneeling, kneeling before Jesus. Matthew wants us to get this. Who's the power player here? Not this ruler, it's Jesus. This ruler comes to one who is greater than he is and asks him to do the unthinkable. Bring his dead daughter back to life. And make no mistake, Matthew wants us to understand this girl really was dead. Though Jesus tells the professional mourners, that's those flute players in that great crowd that we see in verse 23, back in the day they would hire mourners to come and weep and wail and and commemorate the death of someone, so that's who he's, he's talking to. He tells them, go away for the girl is not dead but sleeping. We aren't to think that she hasn't really died. That's why Matthew includes the fact that these mourners laughed at him. They laughed because they know this girl is dead. They missed what he was saying, but they they know this girl is dead. They're professional mourners. They've seen a lot of dead bodies. This girl is dead. And Jesus knows she is dead as well. He isn't mistaken here. He's using some kind of wordplay to make a point, even if it goes over their heads. And what it seems like Jesus is saying is that what seems like the final word to us is not the final word to him. Death now is but sleep when it's confronted by the Lord. And I do believe there may even be a subtle nod to the whole regime change that's coming for those who trust in the Lord, though I doubt any would have picked up on that at this moment. Death is not and will not be the last word because of Jesus Christ, as he powerfully displays here. He takes this girl's hand and he brings her back to life. She stands right up. We're told in a parallel account, felt the need to give explanation, she was 12. That's why she could stand up and walk. That's unparalleled power. In like fashion, he instantly heals this discharge of blood from this woman. And lest we think that the Lord's statement, take heart, daughter, your faith has made you well, somehow takes away from the Lord's power and gives it to her, let's take a minute to examine this theme of faith that we see play out here throughout these miracles in particular. In these accounts, faith is certainly highlighted. And Jesus commends and affirms the faith of these people. 
even attributing their healings in some way to their faith. But what is being taught here is not the power of faith per se. Oh, look at these people. Look at the power of their faith. What's being taught here is the power of Christ, the one whom we have faith in. This passage should motivate us to have faith, to believe God, to trust Christ. But the goal is not to have faith for the sake of having faith. The message of the world, just believe. Believe in what? (laughs) A mere belief that something could happen is not God's goal and it's worthless. No, the goal of the mission is that the Lord might draw people to himself and that they might have faith in him. When the Lord asks the blind men if they believe, he doesn't say, do you believe this can happen or, or do you believe you will be healed? But he says in verse 28, do you believe that I am able to do this? Our faith is only powerful because we are placing our trust in the one who has power. The woman's faith made her well, not because she had some special faith power, but because she trusted the Lord for her healing and he graciously responded. The Lord wanted to know that the blind men believed that he could do it because he wanted the blind men to root their faith in him. Again, all of this, all of these stories, all of this power points to him. Some people treat faith as some sort of mystical superpower. If you have enough faith, then anything you pray for or say or claim should come to pass And so when such and such a prayer is not answered, the only possible explanation is a lack of faith. Such a view actually diminishes the power and the autonomy of God and puts all of the authority and all of the responsibility on our shoulders, the believer. Faith can in fact be very weak, yet because the one who it trusts in is strong, it has power. Jesus is the one who decides whether or not to heal or whether or not to do this or that. And our faith is simply us saying we do believe that he can do it and we trust him no matter what his decision. But we should believe that he can do it. He is worthy to receive our faith. Matthew has been hitting this point home for us. We've now seen Jesus heal a leper, raise a paralyzed servant simply with his word, heal a fever. He calmed the wind and the seas. He cast out demons. He not only healed another paralytic, but displayed his authority and ability to forgive sins. He brought a dead girl back to life. He stopped up a flow of blood. He healed the blind. He healed the mute. Jesus truly is the Son of God the long-awaited Messiah, the son of David, and he has come in power. He has the power and authority to do all that we could ask and imagine. And the mission he is on is one to bring his kingdom to the lost and dying world. To bring the kingdom of God, of which he is the king, and this kingdom is to bring a kingdom that that brings redemption, that brings healing. It's one that reverses the curse and helps a world in desperate need. 
That's the purpose of the mission, that all men might see and know that Jesus is the Messiah, the Lord, the Son of God, and that He has the power to save, and that He has come to draw near to them, and in so doing, draws them near to God Himself. That's the purpose of the mission. Well, now let's dwell for a minute on the need for the mission, which we see in this passage. As I was reflecting on this point, I kept thinking of those infomercials you see requesting donation for funds for underdeveloped countries. Some commentators speaking about how just 50 cents a day will help this person have the basic necessities that they need, and all the while on the screen you see malnourished people in squalid conditions. The whole thing's crafted purposefully to tug at your heart. Unfortunately, many of us have become numb to these images. We've seen them so many times. But the method is effective because without such images, it's challenging for us to grasp the depth of the need that we're being asked to give towards. This whole section has been one long infomercial for us of the great need of the lost and dying world. We spoke a few weeks back about our great need and our great Savior, thinking about the situation we are in and how much we need the Lord. But I want us this week to take a minute and be reminded again of that need, but specifically thinking about it in orientation of those out there beyond ourselves who are in need. We see in our passage, as we've said, this this rich ruler heartbroken over the death of his daughter, at the end of his rope, kneeling before this Jesus of Nazareth, pleading for help. In parallel accounts, this man's servants come and encourage him to give it up and leave Jesus alone because the girl is dead. He's desperate. We see this woman who suffered with a discharge of blood for 12 years, perhaps from the very time she first Got her period. She lives in a time before modern medicine and sanitary products. This woman would have been seen as unclean in the community and ostracized. This discharge of blood was not only a pain physically, but the social effect was even more dire for her. She wouldn't have been able to marry. If this developed while she was married, her husband likely would have left her. Others couldn't touch her. She's at her wit's end and thinks if she can merely touch the fringe of Jesus' garment, she might have a chance. We see these two blind men pleading and this mute man oppressed by demons being brought to the Lord, presumably by his friends, need after need after need. And this list could go on. It says he went throughout all the cities and all the villages teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. We're told in the book of John that all the books in the world could not record all that the Lord did. And the Lord looks out on them. And as we said, it's not with disgust. It's not with contempt. It's with compassion. Because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And Jesus helps them. He taught them Because they needed to hear the truth of God and the kingdom that Jesus was bringing. And he healed them because he had compassion on them. And because he wanted them to see that the presence and the power of God was breaking forth on this earth and bringing with it redemption for both body and spirit. 
And so Jesus looks out. And he isn't annoyed at how backwards this godless culture is. He isn't bothered by their requests. He looks out and he sees a people who need to hear the truth, who need God, and who need healing. This sheep without a shepherd statement was an indictment on the rulers and the teachers of Israel. The men who were charged with leading the people of God and teaching them the way of the Lord were standing here and they were opposing the Son of God himself. They were going so far as grasping at straws, claiming that he was casting out demons by the power of the chief of demons, Satan, which makes no sense. They had failed the people. And Jesus looks out and he sees this world in need. We read, the harvest is plentiful. If we're unaware of the neediness of the world, it's not because the world is no longer as needy as it was in ancient Israel, it's because we aren't looking with eyes to see. Yes, we live in a largely affluent area and some of these needs that we see aren't as obvious, but they're there. We need only take a minute and ask some questions of a friend, of a neighbor, of a coworker, of a shop clerk, of someone on the street, and we will see people are still just as hurting and just as lost, just as helpless, just as hopeless, and still as much in need of the great love and salvation of our compassionate Lord as we were and are. In college, I spent a summer in Taiwan. It was one of the best experiences of my life, and as I was Considering this scene of the neediness of the world, I reflected on my time in Taiwan. I spent 10 weeks there. It's a largely godless nation. I was in a study program with 20 or so other students, none of whom were Christians, and I was consistently reminded that summer of the need. There was the girl who had had a rough childhood. She distrusted men and her experience in the church growing up led her to believe all men couldn't be trusted, including God. There was one good friend who enjoyed musing over every possible thought and idea there was. What about the Gnostic Gospels? Did Jesus have a twin? Did Jesus get married? He didn't challenge, but he was sincerely asking these questions. He was curious. There was a young Mormon man who was trying to teach me as much about Mormonism as I was trying to teach him about the Lord. There was a girl deeply angry and bitter, And honestly, the only word to best describe her was foul. She was an outspoken atheist. She was a lesbian. She wasn't afraid to loudly make these things known, to talk about obscene things in public. She criticized anyone and everyone. And in the end, she so deeply offended our Taiwanese hosts that they actually sent her home early. There was the crippled man on the bench I would see each time I would take the local train. There was the man who claimed to be a Christian and offered to take me and show me around, and while he was doing so, shoplifted right in front of me. There were people putting incense in their McDonald's hamburgers, making an offering to the gods and the spirits of their ancestors. And then there was my friend who asked me one night to walk with her to McDonald's to get a McFlurry. Why? Because just a few years before, her brother had tragically died, and that was the anniversary of his death, and her family always liked to get McFlurries together because it was his favorite treat. And so we sat together, she cried, we enjoyed 
the shake, and I shared with her the hope and the love of Jesus. And this is only a handful of people across the globe. There's a whole community full of these stories around us. We know from our own experiences, we have need, we've got pain, there's brokenness. People who've lost loved ones, who are sick, who are oppressed, who are confused, who are hurting, and most of all, who are trapped in their sins, separated from God and in need of a Savior. This is a broken, weary, and dying world, and we have the glorious truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ, which speaks hope, which brings life, which has the power to save and the power to heal. If you're here and you don't know Jesus Christ, and you come with burdens, you come with pains, you come with brokenness, confusion, you come feeling guilt, you're stuck you're lonely, you're heartbroken, you're needy. There is a God who is eager. He is so eager and willing to welcome him, welcome you to himself. He offers an eternal relationship that won't fail you. He offers an eternal life that won't end. And he offers you a peace on earth that nothing else can offer. And all that this requires of us is that we trust him. That we confess that we're sinful, that we're weak, that we're needy, and we accept the death of Jesus Christ on our behalf. And in so doing, we gain, you gain, immediate, eternal access to the glorious Son of God, Jesus Christ. Church, we have the antidote for all of the world's ailments. We have it. We have it here. In the gospel of Jesus Christ, the plan of redemption, the power of Jesus to save. And the Lord calls us to share it. The Lord recorded his very words in a book so that they would be known, so that we could hear them, so that we could have the truth. And he calls us to take that truth out, which takes us to our third and final point. The purpose of the mission is to draw people to Christ. The need is abundant and all around us. And third, the Lord has specifically called us into that mission. You've likely heard me say this before, but the Lord could simply reveal himself to every individual he's calling, just as he did to the Apostle Paul. But that's not how the Lord intends to make himself known. We even see here, yes, Jesus was on earth. Jesus was the Messiah. Jesus was God in flesh incarnate. Yes, Jesus has all power and authority. Yes, Jesus has given us his very words, which are precious. But Jesus is still about to send his disciples out. And he wants them to be a part of that work. That's the way it was from the beginning. God commissioned Adam and Eve to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. He could have simply created a billion inhabitants on planet Earth to start with. He could have set it up that he made each new individual that was to exist on the Earth. But no, his glorious grace has welcomed us and enlisted us to be part of his plans and his purposes. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you are called to mission. You are. And don't think that the Lord's charge to the blind men 
Not to make it known means that we're not to spread the name of Christ. Some people do like to try and hide behind these enigmatic statements of the Lord. The Lord, I believe, has a few reasons when he says these things to people, you know, sternly charging them not to tell anyone. For one, he wasn't wanting attraction to be drawn to the miracles themselves for the sake of miracles being done. It was about his kingdom. Also, there were situations where he knew certain regions would be difficult to move around if The crowds and the throngs started to hear about this early, and we do see that play out. He also knew the time hadn't come for his crucifixion, and the more his fame spread unchecked, the more the Jewish leaders would stir, and the closer the time would draw near. He knew it wasn't time yet. There were also times, as I believe is the case for these men, who clearly believed him to be the Messiah. They call him the Son of David, that the time hadn't come for that revelation to be clearly stated broadly. A lot of the times you see the Lord say, tell no one, it's following a pronouncement of, you are the Christ. He wasn't yet ready to have that declared broadly and plainly and by those who didn't understand all that that meant yet. Whatever the reasons he had, we live in an age where the good news is to be proclaimed without hindrance. And the full revelation of Christ has come And even back then, he still had a harvest for his disciples to work in. There was proclamation to be made. I'm struck by this passage each time I read it. The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Let's notice a few things here. First, what is plentiful? The harvest not the laborers. How often do we get that backwards in our minds? How often do we think our efforts at evangelism would be futile because no one will believe? How often do we look at someone and think they could never accept Jesus Christ? They don't want to hear me share with them about the gospel. That's a backward way of thinking. We're told multiple times that God has a bountiful harvest that's ripe for the reaping. We're told that there will be people from every tribe and every tongue and every nation. We're told that the descendants of Abraham will be as numerous as the stars in the sky and the sand on the seashore. We're not told that the laborers outnumber the harvest. Never. We cannot outwork our God. We're not going to one day outwork Him and there's no one left. And this statement about the bounty of the harvest is followed by this call to pray. But pray for what? We're told to pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into the harvest. Paul says in Romans 10, How then will they call on him in whom they've not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they've never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? And as it's written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. The Lord wants us to pray that God would raise up and send out laborers into the harvest. That's striking. I don't often pray that prayer. I think it's more common that I find myself and others praying that the Lord would save this individual or that individual. And those are the prayers I I, I tend to hear. That's not wrong. Please do not think that's wrong. We should be praying for softened hearts and, and praying for the Lord's grace to work upon the lives of those around us. But we can't forget we also must pray that the Lord use us. 
and raise up others to be effective witnesses in the world. This is what we see in the scriptures. We see the believers pray for boldness. We see the believers pray that the gospel would go forth unhindered. We see Paul ask for prayer that he would speak clearly and effectively. We see here that we're to ask the Lord to raise up laborers to be sent out. I think part of the reason we don't more regularly pray for laborers to be sent out is because then we would be confronted with the work that the Lord has for us to do. It's a challenging thing to ask for that. In college, I was involved with Campus Crusade for Christ. During that time, I used to be much more intentional to pray this way. I'd ask the Lord to use me each day. I'd ask Him to open up conversations, to give me boldness, to help me see the needs and the opportunities. And you know what? I would see the Lord answer. There would be an open door for gospel proclamation. There'd be something He had for me to step into that day. And perhaps the biggest answer to the prayer was not that he then created that opportunity, but that he opened my eyes to see that I was the laborer he intended to use in his harvest. Church, this imagery, this harvest imagery is one of urgency. There is such a bountiful harvest, and there's only a short window of time in which it can be harvested. The Lord is calling us To not only make the kingdom known, but he's inviting us to participate in the joy of that mission. I've never once regretted stepping out in faith and interacting with someone. I've never once regretted sharing the gospel with another person. Never once. And I'm so grateful because so many of you do this so well. People like Hakel Maizano, who regularly gets into people's lives, invites them to church, shares the gospel with them. There's many who are sitting here today because they had been invited by Hakel. For people like Hobie Clark, who shared his testimony, who prays for ailments of people he just met, who shares the gospel, who extends an invite wherever he goes. Go out to lunch with Hobie and you'll see what it's like to interact with someone. For David and Mary Tao, who hand out Valley Creek cards to their waiters and waitresses and ask how they can pray for them. For people like Michael Constantine, who who uses music as a form of outreach and puts himself out there for the Lord, places like Valley Forge and others, and who regularly sees people give their lives over to Christ. And this list could go on. As we'll see in the next several sermons in this mission series, the Lord has called us to this work. The Lord is with us in it, and we will never, never run out of opportunities to make the glory of Christ known. We will never run out of needs that present themselves. There is always work that the Lord has for us to do. The harvest is plentiful. Christ is the Lord of the harvest. So let's together joyfully enter into this field and see his kingdom expand. Let's pray. Father, we come before you now recognizing our need. We thank you that you in your mercy and grace extended your love to us. And Father, we ask that you would use us to take the gospel 
to take the good news of your love, to take the mercy and the grace that you offer out to the world that they might know. I pray even today, Father, that some of us would be moved and motivated to have an interaction, have a conversation, reach out to someone that we know and share the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, to be intentional, to make known your great love. I pray you would stir in our hearts. If there's any resistance in us here today towards this, Father, I pray you break that down. Let us be motivated. See the need. Feel the need as you felt it. We ask and pray for compassion, Lord. I pray that you would give us compassion, that we would remember that we We're weak and weary, lost and desperate, and you broke into our lives, and that as we look around at others, that we wouldn't be bothered, that we wouldn't be annoyed, but that we would have the compassionate heart of our Lord Jesus Christ. Help us to love as you love, that your glory might be made known, and that people might be saved. We pray this in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen. You've been listening to a message by Nick Kidwell given at Valley Creek Church. For more information on the church and other messages, please visit us online at www.valleycreek.church.